Today's reading is um, taken from Genesis 7 and can be found on page 8 of the P Bibles. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons entered the ark. Sorry, and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all the creatures that moved along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came to, on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deeps burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife, and the wives of his three sons entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarmed over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped up from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we might well um, feel we're well out of our depth ourselves uh, in the flood of uh, this extraordinary ancient story. And we pray that what is familiar to us, perhaps, for um, years and years uh, might be fresh to us this evening, that you might help us to understand 
why this extraordinary story is here and what it means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're continuing looking at the, uh, the story of the flood, which is uh, to remind us that it does occasionally rain in England, if you had forgotten that. Uh, and um, it seems an appropriate summer holiday uh, study. So here we are. Uh, and I want to tell you about a man who was totally lost and absolutely confident of rescue. This particular man was a very wealthy man. He was a fine Christian, and he was a major donor to his local church. And after many years of hard work in his business, he decided to fulfill a lifetime's ambition and sail single-handed around the world. Sadly, halfway across the Pacific Ocean, he was shipwrecked and he ended up alone on a desert island. About a week after he got there, uh, another sailor was also shipwrecked and washed up on the shore. And this second sailor was astonished to find our original sailor lying on the beach, seemingly at ease with the world, sunbathing, uh, with no care whatever at all, totally relaxed. The second sailor said, why haven't you built a fire to make a signal? Why haven't you started to construct a raft so that we can get off this island? Because, replied the rich believer, I'm totally confident that my vicar will find me. <laughs> let, me let me tell you uh, about another man. This is a true story. It's a story of James Irwin, who died in 1991, and I'm going to read you his Wikipedia entry. James Irwin, an astronaut who walked on the moon in 1971 and later founded an evangelical religious organization, died at Valley View Hospital in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He was 61 years old and lived in Colorado Springs. Hospital spokesman said that he died of an apparent heart attack. Irwin said that it was his experience exploring the moon on the Apollo 15 mission in July 1971 that moved him to devote the rest of his life to, quote, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. He resigned from the astronaut corps a year later and became the founding president of the High Flight Foundation, an interdenominational evangelical organization based in Colorado Springs. To church groups around the country, he often spoke of the lunar mission as an epiphany, declaring, I felt the power of God as I've never felt it before. While on the moon, at the end of the first day, exploring the rugged lunar highlands, he said he was reminded of my favorite biblical passage from Psalms. Speaking by radio to mission control in Houston, he began quoting the passage, I'll look unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. And added quickly, but of course, we get quite a bit of help from Houston too. The remark was typical of the seriousness and awe which he, then a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, approached the task of exploring the moon, as well as the enthusiasm and good humor that he conveyed throughout the mission. He was the seventh American to walk on the moon, and it was his only space mission. He established High Flight with his pastor, and the organization operates religious retreats and tours to the Holy Land. On two occasions, he led expeditions to Mount Ararat in Turkey in search of Noah's Ark. 
1982, some 11 years after he walked on the moon, he reached the 16,946-foot summit of Mount Ararat, but fell on a glacier, suffering severe leg and face lacerations. Despite being able to walk on the moon, he had to be carried down from Mount Ararat on horseback. A year later, he surveyed the summit by airplane, looking down for possible remains of the ark, which, according to the book of Genesis, came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Jim Irwin said, It's easier to walk on the moon. I've done all I possibly can, but the ark continues to elude us. So it's easier for a man to walk on the moon than to find Noah's ark. And James Irwin, of course, has not been, is not the only person to have searched for Noah's Ark. Indeed, as recently as April this year, 2010, a group of Chinese and Turkish Christians claimed to have found the Ark in its legendary resting place on Mount Ararat. But despite many rumours, no scientific evidence for the Ark has yet been found. Modern-day searches have centred on two sites, some of you will know this, the so-called Ararat anomaly. One site is Mount Ararat itself in Turkey, and another is on the Turkish-Iranian border. American financed expeditions in 2004 and 2006 have made some interesting claims, but nothing has been validated. So, of course, we can debate, and theologians can debate, the question, did the flood really happen? Is it history? And I've no doubt that if we took a poll of opinion in a church like St. Andrew's, it's rather like actually walking on the moon. Did it really happen? I gather a lot of people actually doubt that now. Maybe they should. I don't know. Anyway, I've no doubt if we took a poll of opinion in a church like St. Andrew's, there'd be many who would say, of course it happened just as the Bible says it did. And others would say, well, I don't believe in its historicity, but I certainly buy into its message. Others might say that they're neither sure if it happened or that it matters much. One thing is quite clear, actually, from reading the New Testament, point that Pete made last week, was that the story of the flood for Jesus is a clear illustration and pointer to the final judgment. It's an illustration, a type of the final judgment to come, as he spells out in Matthew 24. And it's interesting, of course, to note that legends of great floods and dramatic rescues are not unique to the Bible. 19th century scholarship and exploration and discoveries brought to light several versions of the Mesopotamian flood myth, with the closest to Genesis 6-9 in a 7th century BC Babylonian copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh, as it's called. And the hero Gilgamesh meets the immortal man, who I think you pronounce Utnapishtim, and who tells how the god Ea warned him to build a vessel in which to save his family, his friends, and his wealth and cattle from a great flood by which the gods intended to destroy the world. So from this, you may either conclude that there was a strong tradition of flood stories and that the Bible one is just another Or, as I do, you conclude that there must indeed certainly have been some kind of cataclysmic flood. And it's my position, you'll be surprised uh, to know, that when I'm not sure about something, I find the Bible seems to be 
the most reliable rock on which to build. It seems that the Bible is best to be believed in when we're not sure. Of course, the extent of the flood, whether it was uh, local, whether it was a flooding of the known world there in uh, the Middle East, or whether it was global, remains another great subject of debate. But my contention in this sermon, and I just wanted to flag up and recognize the difficulties that some people might have with the historicity of the flood. My contention in this sermon, be you skeptic about the flood's historicity or, com- historicity or committed believer in it, is that there's a crucially important message in this story, a, a, a message for each one of us. And if we want to be as sure, and I'm sure we do want to be as sure, as my rich man in my joke on his desert island, we do well to heed uh, the message of the story of the flood. And I think we can sum up that message in three headings. I'm going to come to them in a minute. Don't put them up for the moment, Martin. The three headings are the seriousness of sin, the justice of judgment, and what I've called the risk of rescue. But before I look at those three headings, I want to make two small points that you might want to bear in mind as you think about the story of the flood. You think about Noah. Perhaps you will read it through over these few weeks while we're preaching three or four sermons on it. And um, you might just want to look at it in a a fresh kind of way. The first thing uh, to note when you're reading the story is that there seem to be two traditions at work in the story. They're worked together, integrated into the story. And that explains the repetitions and the slight discrepancies uh, that you'll find in the stories. So, for instance, in chapter 6, verse 19, Noah is told to bring in two of all the living creatures, and in 7, verse 2, he's told to bring seven of each of the clean animals, representing the two different traditions that have come together uh, in the writer of the story. That's the first thing, just to, to, to recognize as you read it, not that it's a deliberate repetition, but there are two traditions being interwoven in the story. And the second is to consider the flood narrative as what is called a chiasma. I've asked um, Martin to put the word up on the, uh, on the screen as it's not one that we use much in conversation. That is to say it reflects in reverse order the story of creation. Uh, it's a kind of pattern, a model in reverse order. Creation begins in Genesis 1, for instance, with the separation of land and water. And in the flood narrative, the, sto- the story begins with the invasion of the land by the water. In the creation story, God rests on the seventh day. In the flood narrative, in 8 chapter 4, the ark comes to rest on the top of Mount Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. Now make whatever you will of that, and there's much that is made of it by those who study these things, but it demonstrates the wonderfully rich literary genre that we're dealing with here. This is an extremely ancient and extremely complex and carefully constructed story. It is much more than just a Sunday school picture. I just make those two points and now get to my three uh, summaries of the meaning of the story of the flood. And the first is this, the seriousness of sin. Pete dealt with uh, this last week. If you haven't listened to his excellent sermon Let me encourage you to go to the website uh, and listen to it. I never cease to be amazed by that somehow that people hang on to the hope that humankind is essentially good. 
I wonder what newspapers they're reading. What news bulletins are they listening to? Why do we stubbornly refuse to face up to the darkness in our own individual lives? I wonder if you've ever shared with me, I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, I wonder if you've ever shared with me the kind of almost irresistible urge that sometimes comes on you to destroy things. Happily, as I get older, now I got my bus pass last Sunday, happily, it's, this seems to have left me, but I do recall as a student walking down the high in Oxford or the broad and fighting the urge to smash a shop window for no apparent reason whatever. Now, like I'm sure most of the dark urges that you encounter, I managed to control this urge, except on one occasion when unaccountably... I still can't imagine I did it. I broke, for no reason, the light on the lamppost outside Brasenose College. I had to get on my friend's shoulders to reach it, but I did it with the end of my umbrella in the days when we carried umbrellas. <laughs> Perhaps you have a much darker secret than that feeble example of Adam's rebellion. Now, these chapters in Genesis, uh, in Genesis remind us both of the reality of our fallen nature and the seriousness of it. It is so easy for us to be flippant about it, but actually this passage tells us that it's a very serious thing. Humanity is deeply flawed, and it will remain deeply flawed until the return of Christ and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. So the seriousness of sin is part of the message that we are to get hold of from the story of Noah. It's a fairly obvious point, and Pete went into it, as I say, in greater detail last week. My second point is the justice of judgment. I've lost count of the times that people have said to me in the midst of trials, why is this happening to me? It's a completely normal human response. It may be one that you've often asked yourself, why is this happening to me? Now, I would ask you to ask yourself this. What do you find most surprising in the text of Genesis 7? Do you, for instance, find uh, verse 21 surprising? Let me just remind you of what it says. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Do you find that most shocking? Does that surprise you? Are you shocked that our loving Creator God wiped out all that. Why? Does that surprise you? When you hear of a dreadful tsunami, or a Haiti earthquake, or a terrible massacre in a school, are you shocked because you think, how can God allow such a thing? Well, if that is how we feel, and I completely understand it from a pastoral point of view, and I think it is exactly how I would often react or do react when very difficult things happen. I suggest, though, that we have, if we react like that, failed to grasp the seriousness of sin and the justice of God's judgment. We should not be surprised by God's attitude to sin, for the Scriptures tell us uh, consistently what His attitude 
to wickedness is. It so happens that on Friday morning in our prayer meeting, Vicky uh, directed us to Psalm 5. And uh, I had just finished preparing my sermon on the Thursday, and uh, uh, I was very struck, uh, because I hadn't added anything into my notes at this point, by, let me just read it to you, verses 4 and 5 uh, of, um, of Psalm 5. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. So let me just test you with an example for a moment. It's holiday time, and you go away and leave your house uh, in the care of a trusted employee. You carefully request that they should mow the grass, uh, water the vegetables, and keep the house clean, ready for your return. After, let us say, three weeks, you return. You discover as you park your car outside your house that the front door is open and unlocked. The grass is uncut and covered in dog poo. The vegetables have withered and there are beer cans and wine bottles half full and spilled all over your house. What do you say to that trusted employee? I would suggest you are fired might be the polite response. And you would resolve in your heart of hearts never to employ that person in that role again. Your actions would be just judgment. Humankind, this story of the flood tells us, reminds us, humankind has wrecked and continues to wreck God's garden. We are all caught up in the wanton destruction. So what I find most shocking in this chapter is not verse 21, but verse 1 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. That amazes me. That amazes me in the wicked world in which we live. I am astonished at verse uh, 23. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. What shocks me as I think about this is not that God judges justly, but that he withholds his judgment at all. Where did we ever get the notion that we deserve to live? It is all grace. Both are coming into existence in the first place. Did you choose that? How much did you have to do with that? Very little. Nothing, actually. And our continued existence is dependent upon God's grace. I've pondered long on this uh, during this week, as perhaps Noah and his family did, as they floated on the waters of the flood. Why has anyone been spared the judgment they deserve? Why have we been spared the judgment we deserve? Specifically, why have I been spared? And I think the answer to the first question can be found there in 7.1, and you have to understand it carefully. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. I have found you righteous. But we know that Noah was not perfect. We know that he was a sinner. We know that, and it becomes clear in chapter 9 and verse 20. 
But in Noah, God recognizes the potential for his greatest creation. Uh, in In that creation, he recognizes the potential for righteousness, by means he, by which he means the potential for right relationship with God. The potential, if you like, for imaging God once again, for men and women were created, as we were reminded a few weeks ago, in the image of God. Despite sin and wickedness, which is as dreadful today as it was in Noah's time, despite that, It is true, is it not, that we have made amazing progress, amazing progress. We have, despite this story, populated the earth. We have multiplied. We have exercised dominion over the earth with amazing scientific progress in all sorts of areas, of course, many of you at the forefront of that even today. We have advanced in morality and in justice. We no longer hang people for sheep stealing or stone adulterers, at least not in this country. Above all, we have been able, generation by generation, to see men and women, boys and girls, become friends of God and find their way back to the garden. God looked at Noah and saw that he had the potential for righteousness, and right down the history, God has looked at his people and seen the same thing. And though we deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth, he has rescued. Is that not a remarkable thing? Is that not a remarkable thing? You see, when you went away on holiday, it was as if you left your home not not in the charge of a trusted employee. You left your home and your garden in the care of your children. And it's a terrible thing to sack your children, isn't it? That is God's dilemma. He loves us. He loves us. And in Noah, he saw the potential for righteousness that is in every man, woman, boy, and girl. So the justice of judgment. Finally, what I've called the risk of rescue. God told Noah to build an ark, and he did. How absurd is that? As absurd as coming to church this evening? What a stupid risk he took. He risked his money. He risked his time being wasted. Sometimes uh, young people who become Christians and decide to go into full-time Christian ministry are uh, criticized by parents for saying, why do you want to waste your life doing that Christian thing when you could do something a proper job? Noah risked wasting his time building an ark. He risked ridicule by his friends and his family. What if it never rained? What if it never rained at all? What a fool he'd look. And he certainly risked failure. What if it had started raining before he finished the job? And God took a huge punt on Noah. What a risk he's taken with Noah. But Noah believed enough to obey. He took a risk. What if there, for God, what if there was no one to rescue? What if there had been no one to rescue? What what if, after all, there was nothing to be rescued from for Noah? Never rained. What worst of all if there was no rescuer? He's just floating on the flood forever. 
What a risk faith is. A risk for God and a risk for us. And week by week, we gather here as successors of risk-taking Noah. What if we're wrong? What if God is wrong in choosing us and we fail Him? Where is our safe place? Where amidst this risk-taking situation, where is our ark while the storms rage and the waters rise and all around us we see people suffering and perishing and we ourselves get caught up in it and the agony of it. Why me? Why is this happening? Why are the waters overwhelming me? Well, I wonder if you've noticed this evening that I have moved the ark to which we must all cling. I have it here at my feet, and I'm going to place it here in a new position. If you have faced seriously the seriousness of your sin, if I have faced seriously the seriousness of my sin, then it is to the cross of Christ that we must cling. This is the place of rescue for us. This is the place. This is the ark that will see us through the flood. If you have faced seriously the absolute justice of God's judgment on sin and wickedness, it is to the cross of Christ that you must cling, for there His justice and His love are perfectly displayed. There, the innocent one, the one who was alone truly righteous, the one who truly bore the image of God, hung on a cross in our place, taking the waters of the flood that we deserved, the destruction that we deserved, so that we could be friends of God. Your vicar may well let you down and not come uh, and rescue you, because I'm afraid your vicar is a sinner just like you. But Jesus has come. Jesus has come to the deserted island of your soul, and He will bring you home. This is where we must stay. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening both uh, bearing burdens that are almost too much for us to bear and recognizing also that your word convicts us deeply of our unworthiness. And yet, we are like Noah in your sight. You long for us to grasp uh, that ark, to climb aboard it, to put our trust in the rescuing act of God. And so this evening, as individuals and as a family, as a community, we say afresh to you that we put our trust in the cross of Christ, the place where love and justice met, and where forever the floods have been held back, and there is life forever. Amen.